0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org.
1: The Bible says. and So this morning, we're going to be starting a two-part series on gratitude. As we close out Jonah and move in, getting ready to move into Advent, we wanted to create a a segue that was nice. And so we're going to be talking about gratitude this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 15 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one located in one of the seats in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. You can keep that. Again, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. If you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17 says this.
0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. Glad that you're here. If it is your first time, like Ty said, we're glad you made us a part of your week. We're we're really hopeful that you enjoy your time with us this morning. My name is Corden. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. uh, And we have uh, finished up our series through the book of Jonah in the fall. We've got a couple weeks we wanted to work through three verses in Colossians and focusing in on gratitude as we're getting ready for Thanksgiving this Thursday. We want to talk about... Uh, gratitude together. But uh, the reason for the decision to talk about gratitude is not just seasonal. I also think it's uh, culturally appropriate. It's uh, it's helpful for us right now, where we are in our time and in our place. And I say that because if there is a uh, society-wide struggle, it's a society-wide struggle with things like resentment, bitterness, entitlement, and uh, all of these uh, different Illnesses have an antidote, and their antidote is in gratitude, gratefulness toward God. And so I want to talk a little bit about that um, through the book of Colossians. Now, I wanted to mention a few things before we pray. Uh, and, and really, at its very heart, we have to ask ourselves, why do we fall prey, um, not just individually, but maybe even societally, corporately, to things like resentment or bitterness? Um, and the answer is this. Resentment and bitterness come quickly to the heart that becomes acutely aware of suffering but becomes spiritually forgetful of God's blessings and goodness. So uh, we say this pretty often here, but, you know, all it takes is more time to recognize that suffering is going to come more acutely. You know, this is why maybe you have some older people in your life and things are going really well and they just say, give it time. And then, you know, that seems pretty masochistic. And you're like, well, that's tough. I don't want them to be my friends. But, you know, your surly grandfather will tell you things like that, and you need to hear it. Or maybe an older married couple, you know, they see you, and you're holding hands, you're just swaying along, and you're so happy, and they give you that line, that one-liner, like, give it time. You're like, man, these, these people are brutal, you know? Um, but there's a truth to it, and it is this. Jesus told us that, you know, there were two houses, and one man built his house on the rock, and one man built his house on the sand. And then his parable goes something like this. When the storm arose... We uh, you know, one of the houses fell, the one that wasn't built on a foundation, and the other house stood. Now, what's often missed in this whole story is that Jesus didn't say that if the storms come, he just said when they come. So the suffering's coming. This was just assumed by Jesus. This has been assumed by every person that's ever lived longer than, I don't know, around a week. The hardship's on the way. So you become more and more acutely aware that you're living in a fallen world and brokenness is all around you. And when those things start to impact home, but you become spiritually forgetful of the fact that you have a good father who has blessed you, then resentment, bitterness, well, really maybe entitlement, resentment, bitterness is the result. Now, this morning what I wanna talk about is to walk through verses 15 and 16. Next week we'll get into verse 17. But to uncover a handful of gospel realities that we can be grateful for in order to awaken the joy that gratitude offers so one of the things i mentioned is that we become spiritually forgetful and this is the uh, this is true it's a it's a truism of the attention at least three gospel realities from this text, and what I mean by gospel realities are things that were purchased for us by Christ's perfect life, vicarious death, and powerful resurrection that are true for you because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, even in spite of who you are and what you've done, and that when these things land on the heart and we recognize them for what they are, that what should ensue is gratitude that leads to joy. God calls us to be grateful and to be thankful to him because there is worship that is due to his name, glory due to his name. But what we have to know is that God doesn't need our worship. Jesus told the Pharisees, if these don't worship, even the rocks will cry out. But that when we do worship, we are then oriented as we were created and joy ensues for us. This is the the exchange. God gets the glory, we get the joy. It's a great deal. But if God doesn't get the glory, we don't get the joy, right? And This is why we fall into clothes used to be kind of a major a, a major benefit. Now we all decide and judge one another on the basis of whether or not you look cute. We should be grateful we got clothes on, you know. And those are all good things, but what I want to focus on is we're thankful to God for deeper spiritual realities that are true in Christ. And it's those things that get down to the rock bottom of our soul and bring joy when we recognize who God is and what he has done for us in the person of Christ. to be grateful for the peace of Christ by telling you what exactly he means by the peace of Christ. What does it mean that the peace of Christ has been hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you. just as much as God the Father looks down upon Christ and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he now looks at every Christian that by faith trusts in the name of Jesus and says the same. You are now made at peace with God in Christ. You're no longer an enemy, but you're a son or a daughter. He's welcomed you in. And in so doing, he not only did this, but he made peace between brothers. They're no longer a Cain and Abel slang where Cain could say, am I my brother's keeper? But now in Christ through this slain son of God, we now no longer are enemies between each other. Now, human beings have for us in the cross is to say that the primary majestic as this, we see it theoretically almost as something so impossible like, like my son or maybe even myself see the spaceship reality of him ever having a spaceship and living on the moon. It goes into that category. It's kind of theoretical and the peace of Christ ruling in your heart is something that you could work for, but you're never really going to get it. But what Paul is telling us here is Or earning or payment that you could ever have, but it's more akin to the reality that my son lives in when he goes to bed at night and he knows that he has air conditioning, he doesn't have to worry about being safe, he doesn't have to worry about whether or not he's gonna be warm in the cold or cold in the heat or having covers or making sure that there's not gonna be any burglars. Because, guess why? Because he's my the spaceship but puts it into the category of you just get the peace of Christ because you're God's child now. That's the reality for you because of what Christ has done and now you have a dad Jeremiah, but it was just much easier to do Hebrews. You know, quickly, we can go there. It's from Jeremiah, okay? And, and the writer of Hebrews is quoting it. Here's what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The Old Testament saints had tablets, stone tablets, given to them by Moses. On those stone tablets, God, with his very finger, had written the law, the moral code for Israel. And then he had commanded the children of Israel that they must obey. He presents them with the stone tablets, and he says where they were to obey. Life if they obeyed, death if they disobeyed. The problem with the Old Covenant was not the law. The law was true and righteous and good. The problem with the Old Covenant was the people... Because they could not keep the covenant. They had the law, but they had no heart to obey it. They knew the truth, but they had no desire for it. Like an x-ray machine, the law could simply diagnose the problem. It could show the broken bone, but it couldn't heal it. And so it showed all of Israel to be sinners, but it had no capabilities to change that. It indicted them all, Romans 3.23, as those who had fallen short of the glory of God, sinners, sinners. This is why Paul could confidently say this in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God save one. So the old covenant although true didn't have the goodness of the new. What is the new? Well the new covenant is that Jesus, the very word of God made flesh, and not tablets of stone but God in the flesh decided that he wanted to dwell amongst us. But that's not it. Not only Emmanuel, God with us, we'll celebrate this next month. Not only did Jesus decide he would be God with us, the word of God with us, but then he died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and prior to ascending, he told his disciples, wait and pray until you will receive power from on high. When this happened, the intention of God was now made clear. Not only did Jesus want to live among them, but he threw the spirit in them. He would dwell in them. They would become the temple of, the, of God. Now this is... Unbelievable. The, the living word would now dwell in people, or as Jeremiah puts it, I will put my law into their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. How? Christ would now get into to our very own hearts and start making his living there. He'd make his household with us, or as Revelation says, at lo, I stand at the door and knock. He opens. I will come in and sup with them. I'll have dinner there. C.S. Lewis says it like this, when Jesus enters into your heart and you know, the household of your soul, you think he's there to fix a leaky faucet or to fix a, door, fix a door, and then he immediately lays a hammer to load-bearing walls and starts renovating the whole place. Jesus tends to make his house in you. You're now the temple of God. Now, the reason that we're not grateful for this right off the bat at first blush is because we're missing a major implication, and that is that what the law could not do Now God is doing in you, and he's done it apart from your effort and apart from your contributions, all on his own in Christ. Jesus died and rose again and then ascended in order that he might send his spirit to live in you and accomplish the very purposes of God that you and I were meant to do. A couple quotes that I want to mention. One's from John Bunyan. He's the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he says this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. Okay, so he's describing the law. It says, run, run faster, run faster, but he has no feet, no hands. Do better, do better, no ability to do it. But listen to what he says. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and lends me wings. The gospel calls us higher and then gives us greater gift. So the law called us, this is why Jesus could say things like, you have heard it said that if you commit adultery that you deserve to die. But I say, if even in your heart you've lusted, then you've already committed adultery. So he raises the standard in the gospel. And now everybody's saying, well, who could even be saved? Well, he also died for us. Where the law gave us the x-ray machine, the gospel gives us the great physician. The law didn't give you feet or hands to run or do. The gospel says fly, and you still have no feet or hands, and then puts wings on you. That's what Christ has done in the gospel. Augustine said it like this. In his confessions, he said, God, grant what you command me and then command whatever you will. So he understood. If God grants the strength, he can command anything and it'll be done. So he said, just give me the strength and then I don't care what you ask me to do, I'll do it. But you got to grant that I, that I actually am able to do it. This is what the gospel does. Christ not only Commands us to live lives that are supernatural, like love your neighbor, and then guess what else Jesus said? Love your enemy. That's supernatural. But then Jesus says, and I'm gonna come live inside of you in order to make that happen. That's the gospel. I'm gonna start to, I'm gonna indwell you, and I'm gonna start to change you from the inside out. Another way to put it is this: every time you and I now read the word, we read it differently than the old covenant saints, because we read it with a new promise. When you and I read the word, like we have this morning, and like Kyle got up here and read the word, and we were speaking it together, what we're doing is reading the word with the promise that the Holy Spirit, the very living word of God, is dwelling within us, sowing the seeds of that word into our hearts that there might bear fruit in us. That God is actively engaged and working for our sanctification. That which God commands you to do, he's working out in you through the power of his spirit every single time we read the scriptures. Now, this is the reason that you're going to be grateful for this is if you start thinking about it boots on the ground. You walked in this morning and maybe you had coffee and you didn't feel a single Holy Ghost goosebump while we sang. You argued with your wife this morning. You yelled at the kids. You kicked the cat. If you don't have a cat, you kicked the air. You stubbed your toe. You're frustrated. This week was not a great week. You'd said the things you ought not to say. Ought not say. You didn't say the things you ought to say. And guess what? You walked in here. And you mouth the words almost seemingly meaninglessly, right? And here's the promise of God because the Holy Spirit indwells you, if you're a believer that God was doing the work that you and I are too lazy, too weak, too feeble, too indifferent to do, God's doing the work because He's that good. Isn't that incredible? Now, you might be saying, Court, don't say that. Tell people they need to work harder. Don't, don't let them just sit by. No, listen to me. God's doing the work in you. The Bible says that. We have to say that. Now, is that just admon- does that cleanse you from any responsibility? No. What I'm telling you is that the gospel truth is that you and I could never do what was necessary for the Spirit to live in us and do the work that is necessary for us to look like Jesus. God's doing that. He's doing that in you right now. He's doing that in you even whenever you cringe at something that I might say from the word. God is doing a great work in you. Paul said it like this in Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you will complete that work. God is not the guy who starts a construction project and doesn't finish it. Like you and I, guys, wives, I know you get mad at us. You know, we start, you know, we start we're, we're going to take the trash out. We've been saying that for three weeks. You know, and you get, fr- God's not that way. He started something in you. He is going to complete it. So what should this do? Remember gratitude. It should, when you get to the close to despair about your marriage, you need to know that God cares more about your marriage and the holiness therein than you ever could. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let him rule. Let him rule. Okay, last one here in verse 16. So when the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, what does he say we'll do? Well, we'll teach and we'll admonish one another in all wisdom. We'll sing psalms, we'll sing hymns, we'll sing spiritual songs, all of you songbirds, there you go, with thankfulness in our hearts toward God. So if first we are to be grateful for the peace of Christ, if second we're to be grateful for the indwelling word, lastly we are to be grateful for gospel community. We're to be grateful for the family that God has birthed us into. Now I love this, it's perfect for Thanksgiving. All of us are going to go on Thursday and you know what you don't get to choose? Your family. You know what I mean? So that's why we, we started this thing called Friendsgiving. Friendsgiving is the Thanksgiving with the people you would choose. <laughs> Thanksgiving's the real deal, okay? That's the real thing. That's the one God chose, right? And that's why it's all fraught with weirdness. You got that uncle that's odd, you know, that's why. Because you don't get to choose those people. That's who you're going to Thanksgiving with no matter what. Well, guess what? The family of God's the same way. Now, sometimes we have this facade where we think, but I still choose my church. Okay, yeah, you choose your church. God sovereignly chooses who's in the family, though. So listen to this. There's that which is called the visible church, and then there's the invisible church. So the visible church is all of us and all the people that we see. But God judges the hearts, and he knows everyone who is his. And guess what? When we show up to heaven, you don't get to say, I want to go Friendsgiving. The marriage supper of the Lamb has all the seats that God's invited these people to sit in. And he's wiser than us. He's, better. He's more just than us. He's more kind than us. He's more gracious than us. God has chosen your family. Now, why did God choose for us to have a spiritual family? Well, there's a handful of reasons. I'm going to try to go through a couple, and then we're going to pray. First is, you and I aren't strong enough to run this race alone, nor were we created to. So, Christianity is not a monastic religion. It's not. You are saved, and then you go off into the mountains with Christ, and you, know, you really fast, and get your coffee out, and you just bask in the Shekinah. Glory of God. That's not Christianity. Christianity is that we are saved not only into Christ, but into Christ's body, into a people. Saved from sin into a people. Which means now God's, dec- God's chosen for you brothers and sisters that you didn't get to choose. One of the things I used to joke about in student ministry, and I became an intern and then I quickly became a pastor, is my friendship started to become more odd and, and misshapen. It used to be, when it, before I was in Christ, all of my friendships were built around Affinity. So it was like, you know, I was an athlete, therefore my friends were athletes, you know, or, uh, you know, age kind of played a part in it. I had classes with these people, so therefore now these were my friends. Then I came to know Christ, and my friends are, you know, from all over the spectrum and, and not even like me at all. I'd say, hey, you want to go play basketball? They don't know. They don't want to play basketball. And I'm all, this is lame. You know, they want to go, I don't know, play board games, and I don't want to do that. Then I started realizing I was having a, one of my best friends was 70 years old. And that's odd, right? That's a weird coupling at Denny's in the morning. But those was my, my, my friend now. And we hung out. Age was different. Also, my friends looked different. Different backgrounds, different races. I had all sorts of different friends. You know why? Because now my new family had a singular identifying marker. and It had nothing to do with all these other divisions. It was Christ. God chose them as my brothers and sisters. Now I got all these weird friends. And they probably looked at me and like, I got a weird friend. And so God brings us into this weird family because we need one another. He created us to be interdependent. He created us that we might depend on one another. And so he provides you with the family to live in. Now, I also want to point out what in this text is the family doing? What does Paul say that the gospel community does? Well, what do we see? They're teaching one another, admonishing one another, singing psalms, singing hymns, singing spiritual songs. That, now, this doesn't mean that at every home group that you guys got to break out into like, you know, some Mamma Mia, whatever, uh, musical. What's happening here? Well, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but so far, and every, day, every gathering you come to here at Providence is pretty simple. Uh, what are the two major things we do? We read the Bible, we pray, and we sing. Well, Why is that? Do we, do we just sing for no good reason? No. Right here, Paul's telling us why. The people of God get together, and as the indwelling word is is changing us, We speak that indwelling word to one another, the truth, and we sing it. Now, you might be asking, why do you sing it? Well, one of it is a worship element, but I want you to to understand. Singing is all about formation as much as preaching is. Preaching is formative as we preach the Bible. Singing is formative. If you don't believe me, what do your children remember the most? The songs in the car when you're driving with them. They're like earworms, right? They start singing to you, and that's either a good thing or a bad thing depending upon what you listen to. Okay, if you're like me and you're listening to the black album from Metallica, it's not great. Okay, but we sing together because it's formative. We sing together because those are things we remember. And it's those truths that then start to embed themselves, not just in the mind, but into the heart, which bears forth fruit. Okay. So let's talk about why is it that we aren't grateful for these things? Well, I've already touched on one reason, and that's because we're forgetful. And we maybe, perhaps we don't see it as the spaceship. We see it more as the things that are just every day. And I'm hoping that this morning you're seeing that these gifts that I'm talking about are like the spaceship. These are majestic things. These are deep things. These are wonderful things that you couldn't buy on your own. And God in Christ has provided them for you. But there's a second reason and it's this. Not only are you spiritually forgetful, but you have an enemy who wants to do his best to cast the spell of forgetfulness on you. And so you have an accuser, and what does the accuser do? He longs for you to feel anxious, and he longs for you to forget that you have Christ who will rule your heart in peace. So he's after you in that way. He's after you to fan and to flame the anxiety and to blind you from the benevolent king that longs to rule over your life. The accuser wants to make you feel helpless when you find yourself in the depths of sin, The accuser does not want you to know that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit that will help you fight against sin and walk in obedience to God. He wants you to feel like this is always who you're going to be. You're never going to change. You're always going to be that person who continues to fall into that same thing. And he actually will maybe even surround you with people who will tell you that. But God has... A different story here. He's provided for you in Christ, the indwelling word, and by his spirit, it changes us. And then lastly, the accuser loves to make you feel isolated. As a Christian, it's one of the th- number one things that the wolf does is he takes one sheep, he, distra- he makes him stray away from the flock, and then he attacks that single sheep. There's more protection, there's more care, there's love in the family. So the wolf knows that he can't attack the flock, so what will he do? He'll draw one sheep away. He wants to isolate you. And so this morning, my prayer is simple. And it's this. I hope that this morning is a reminder, almost like Christmas Day with our kids. What do we always do at Christmas Day? Your kids are all around, your grandparents are there, and grandparents, you guys are giving all these children more toys than they could ever do anything with, and it frustrates us because we don't know what to do with them. So we end up in the attic and we step on them. But, but the kids are happy, right? They're getting and my kids, they're like opening. They have so many toys. They're like open a toy and then they just toss it aside. Next, you know. And so what do you do as a parent when they do that? You stop them and you say, "What do you say?" Thank you, right? That's so what you always do. If you haven't been doing this, you gotta do this, okay? It's important. What do you say? Thank you. What are you doing? You're orienting the heart of your child to remember what was given to you was given to you by someone, not, and you didn't do anything for it, right? They love you, and they gave you this, so there needs to be gratitude that's given. Now, here's the difference. Human beings, we long for that kind of approval, so maybe we're like, you know, we got that grandma that if your kid doesn't say thank you, then you're going to get that, like, passive-aggressive Facebook post or note later, so you maybe have that, that uh, motivation. God doesn't need our thank yous. He knows we need it. It orients us back to the creature-creator relationship so that we might actually get the joy so the, the gratitude is not because God's just like yeah 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 praise me. It's that remember when God gets the glory we get the joy and the inverse is true. So the gratitude is us being God's calling to attention His goodness, not to make much of Himself as though He needed it because even the rocks will cry out. He calls attention to His goodness so that you can drink from the well of His goodness. And so this morning I pray we would hear the Father's voice. What do you say? What do you say? That's what he's after. And again, what's he after it for? For you or for him or for you? He's going to get the glory, friends. This is for you. What do you say? If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, we, um, we come before you now and we say thank you. Thank you for not only all of the physical things that we could be grateful for because my God, we are so blessed. My King, we are so blessed by you. But today, this morning, we willfully and meticulously decide to thank you for the spiritual realities that were won for us by your son, Jesus, on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to have your body broken in hostility so that we could live in peace. Thank you, Jesus, Jesus, Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing for your blood to be shed, that we might not have this enmity with one another forever and ever. Thank you, Jesus, that your, your blood was shed, that you might indwell us, bring life to our bones. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood was shed, that we might be made sons and daughters of a benevolent king who is our father. Thank you, Jesus, that we have a message to tell our children that it is a better word, It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Thank you, Jesus, that now we have the opportunity for not just our mouths to sing, but for the meditation of our minds and the words of our mouth to match our hearts. And so we do ask, would you do that for us now? Would you move our hearts toward worship? Bring our attention to that which we should be grateful for and change us from the inside out, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.